All right. While you are turning to 2 Timothy chapter 3, let me just tell you this. Um, we've been busy. Uh, I've been away. We've been away. Uh, I'm preaching at the same church for the last three weeks. And I got to tell you something funny. Um, we leave when we go to preach at that church, and I do it every July for three weeks in a row. Uh, leave an hour or so later than when we come here. So this morning at 7.30, I was sitting at my computer in my bath, you know, in my sleeping stuff, and uh, working on my computer, and Mary came in the door, 7.30, Totally dressed, said, she's, and here's what she said. Paul Burleson, <laughs> what are you doing? Well, I thought I was rather obvious what, it, but, but she was talking about the fact we always leave at 725. And I'm always in there pacing, ready for her to be ready. Here she was at the door. In my mind, in my tiny little pea-sized brain, I had the same schedule that I've had the last three weeks, and it liked to have. So, now, you've got to understand, I am not a good guy under pressure. I, the pressure, does, and I do not, we're not Siamese twins. We don't go together. But I literally had to talk myself down for the first 30 seconds as I went into the bedroom got dressed, got out. Now, I will admit that I went a little slower. Uh, you know, we got in the car, got away. I will admit that I didn't technically stick with the speed limit, but we got here in time with, yes, yes. So anyway, we are delighted to be here. Steve has asked me to go ahead and finish the three-part series. I did one uh, a while back, and I'll do one on inspiration today and illumination next Sunday. Uh, and I appreciate the fact because they're they're here, and so it's always a thrill for me uh, have my Bible teacher present. You know that is always a fun thing. Um, and and I think uh, Steve would agree with me on this. Anybody who teaches the Bible, particularly pastors who do it with such regularity understand that there are three things that can happen when you teach the Word of God. You teach and it can be uh, informational. Now that's good. The text of the scripture is information. Information is very, very good. A message can be informational and that's wonderful. But sometimes there's something about a text or a message or a particular train of, train of thought that under an anointing becomes something inspirational so that the informational that you have received turns into something that's inspiring and that you're not soon to forget and so on. But then there's a third thing that can happen and that is that what is informational and giving being given, maybe we trust even inspirational can become transformational so that it's one of those oh my moments where I've read that a thousand times, never seen it, never heard it, I see it. I've had those moments, they're not close by any means, but I always look, and as, as does Steve, successfully look 
uh, at being informational always because we want to deal with the text of the scripture. But our prayer is when we teach it'll always be inspirational. And then if God willing and the moment's right for somebody, it'll be transformational. Now, you're saying, why have you told us this? And the answer is because the message I'm going to teach today, uh, next Sunday, and the one that I taught in May are more informational than anything else. They're my least favorite. I would much rather deal with a passage that is kind of inspirational for me in the putting it together. This is more informational. Now, I'm not down putting information because it's the text of the scripture. It's divine and we want to hear it. But I'm hoping that somebody will find it inspirational and maybe one or two even transformational, but that'll sure be the work of the Holy Spirit because neither the content nor the deliverer has any capacity for me to transform that into what we've talked about in those three things. So I'm going to be dealing with a, an informational thing. And we're going to have a time of prayer at the end of the class, if you don't mind today, and we'll continue now. Steve, would you read our text? Your Bibles are open to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, and I'm talking about our regular reader over there. Uh, read our text, if you will, sir. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right. Thank you, sir. Now, you have an outline before you. Uh, I'll be, as much as possible, following that outline for your benefit. The very first thing I'm going to ask you to do is you see the first two words on my outline below the text. They're on the left side, last time. Do you see that? Well, I forgot to put in a word. So would you write in there, if you have a pen, dash, last time, dash, revelation. Because that's what we dealt with last May. It was the introductory message of a three-part series on revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Now, of course, last time when we looked at Revelation, we looked at the three aspects of Revelation. Natural Revelation, that's creation. That's everything we see with a naked eye or telescopes if we're looking into the universe. But the point is, it's what we relate to in the natural world. Uh, it's creation itself. And natural revelation shows that God is. In other words, no one is excused from recognizing God is real. Creationism shows that. Creation shows that. God is. But then we saw last time personal revelation, which is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus shows who God is. Not just that God is, but who God is. He's the kind of person who loves and forgives and accepts and desires relationship and all the things that are real about Jesus we discover about God because he was God in human flesh, revealing 
himself to us. But then we saw verbal revelation, which is uh, natural revelation creation, personal revelation is Christ, verbal re uh, revelation is communication. In other words, that's what God says. Now, we call it the Bible. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, the inspiration of the Word of God. Now, next week we'll look at the illumination of the Word of God and how the Holy Spirit gives insight and how we come to understand uh, things that maybe we are naturally not able to understand. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, so today we're going to deal with basically two questions. How did God give us the Bible? And the second question is, can we trust the Bible that we say God gave us? Now, will it surprise you to know that I'm going to use the Bible to answer those two questions? I'm going to show you the answer to those two questions. How we got the Bible? Can we trust the Bible from the Scripture themselves? Now, somebody says, well, isn't that a, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, well, uh, what else would you think about them if you're going to follow what the Bible says? Well, my point is this. If you can't believe what the Bible says about itself, then how would you know to believe what it says about Jesus coming again or salvation or the nature of the church, or any other theological issue. In other words, if the Bible doesn't speak correctly about itself, how we got it, you know, and uh, uh, how it can be trusted, then we have no reason to trust the Bible about anything else it talks about. So I'm not going to waste our time trying to prove the Bible outside itself. I want to let the scriptures teach or speak and say what they say about themselves. And uh, it's in that passage that was read to us a moment ago. All scripture, Paul's writing to young Timothy, he says all scripture is given by inspiration. Now the word scripture is the Greek word for, uh, uh, is the Greek term graphe. Now you know what that word means because anytime you drive under an underpass and you see all the scribblings on the wall, you say, well, look at that what? Graffiti. Graffiti. And that's from the original word graphe in the Greek language. So when we see graffiti, we're using actually an Americanized version of a Greek word. Well, look at that graffiti. But what the Bible means by graffiti is writings. And when the Bible is talking about the writings, it's talking about all that has been given that we now call the Old Testament. Because in verse 15, Paul said to Timothy, you've known the scripture, that's the word graffiti, writings, you've known the writings and for Paul, that's synonymous with Old Testament scripture since you were a child. Now, uh, Peter said about Paul's writings in uh, his letter, 2 Peter 3.16, listen to what he said. He, that is Paul the apostle, has said some things hard to understand. You ever found that when Paul writes something in Romans or 
some other place that you find a little hard to understand? Simon Peter's being honest here. He says, Paul has said some things hard to understand, which people who like to stir up things twist around, just as they do with other scriptures. Now, it's the same word, writings, the same word, graphe, meaning the same context, the Old Testament. In other words, Peter is assessing what Paul writes. Remember, he wrote 13 of the New Testament letter. Everything Paul writes is, in Peter's opinion at least, holy scripture. So what you have is you have the Bible as the word of God according to the Bible itself. Paul and Peter and Timothy and others say it. So practically speaking, when we use the phrase inspired by God, and connect it with the scriptures is talking about all that we call the Old Testament and now we call the New Testament, including the writers of Peter and Paul and others, okay? So that's talking about the scriptures. All scripture is God-breathed. Now that's the first thing that we come to when we look at the Bible because I want to say three things about it and the first thing in your outline is the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Now, the word inspired uh, is only used one time in all the Bible, right here. You won't find it any other place. And when you interpret the Greek word, God inspired, you go to the Greek uh, theosnostus. Theosnostus. Now, uh, you know, the word doesn't mean much to us. But in Greek, it's a combination of two words. Theos, which is the Greek word for God. Theology is the study of God. So, theosnostos is the word which means God and nostos Breathe. That's right. Have you ever heard of someone having pneumonia? It's from the Greek word noustos. And so what the scripture says about itself is it is God breathed. And that word is inspired in the New Testament. Okay? Now, let me give you a little bit about that word, God breathed, or theosnostus, because it's really an interesting word. For instance, the word means God breathed forcibly. That word doesn't mean that God just kind of let out a little. That's not what the word means. It's no gentle nudge, but it's like the brisk, Oklahoma wind, if you made a deposit lately in Oklahoma, you know, most of them have that thing that says, please put under the wire in the basket. This is Oklahoma, after all. And meaning, the wind is going to be blowing. And in Oklahoma, we're aware that sometimes the wind's so strong, you just see those thistle, Russian thistles, or those tumbleweeds, we call them, just rolling in front of you, and so on. That is what that word literally means. God breathed forcibly. It doesn't mean with a gentle nudge. It's the idea that is illustrated in uh, Second uh, 
Second uh, Peter one twenty one. Listen to what it said. Prophecy. Now he's talking about all the Old Testament scripture. Prophecy came not by the will of man, but as holy men of old were moved along by the Holy Spirit. That moved along is the idea of the forcible God breathing. So the prophets spoke, being moved along. I mean, they were really carried along to a destination, a, a certain destination. That's what the word God breathed means, forcibly. But it also means that uh, God breathed means consciously. In other words, the writers of the New Testament, the writers of the Old Testament too, for that matter, but we're dealing with the New Testament now. The writers of the New Testament were not robots. They were conscious of writing and putting down what they were uh, putting down. Um, their personalities came through. Their skills became evident. When God forcibly breathed his word through uh, Simon Peter, he did it through a guy who didn't know a whole lot about social skills. Didn't know a whole lot about much of anything except fishing. But then when he breathed and forcibly moving through, a, say, an apostle Paul, now you've got an intellectual giant. And so what Paul writes has a sense of intellect about it. What Peter writes has a sense of oil on your fingers from working with your hands kind of thing. It's much simpler and so on, but it's all God breathed. But he does it forcibly and he does it consciously, meaning that they're, they're, they are conscious. They are themselves in the giving of the letters or writing of the, of the scripture that they're given. And so that's what the word means. Peter was a fisherman. Uh, Paul was an educated Jew. And that comes through in the writing. By the way, there's only one book in the Bible that uh, most people do not know for sure who the author is. That's Hebrews. We take, we basically know authorship of most of the books. But Hebrews, we just don't know. Except, in my opinion, my opinion only, doesn't mean it's right, just mine. I think Paul authored Hebrews. Now, the reason, because in Hebrews, in chapter 10, particularly, you find the trilogy of words, faith, hope, and love. And Paul's the only New Testament writer that ever used those. He did it in 1 Corinthians. So I'm thinking that Hebrews sounds more like Paul. Now, does it matter who wrote the book, humanly speaking, if the author of the book the, is God himself who breathes forcibly and consciously uh, upon men. That is, they're conscious of writing down what they're writing down. It doesn't matter because God is the author of Scripture. Amen? It's God-breathed. Now, there's a third thing that this word theosnustis means, and it means uh, God-breathed successfully. In other words, when Paul got finished writing First and Second Timothy... When Peter finished writing 1st and 2nd Peter, he had genuinely written God-breathed words. He was successful in coming to his definition. Scripture uh, actually was given through those men, okay? Here's the way I like to illustrate it. Maybe it'll help you. 
Think of yourself on a cruise ship. Anybody ever been on a cruise? Raise your hand if you've been on a cruise. Okay. If you're on a cruise, <clears throat> they have all kinds of activities. Skeet shooting, swimming pools, have a dance floor. They have a buffet. Man, do they have buffets. <laughs> I mean, all kinds of things that you're doing. And everybody on that cruise ship is uh, doing their unique thing individually. Some shooting skeet, some swimming. But all are being taken along to a port of call, a certain destination. So what the Bible says is when God breathed uh, forcibly and consciously and successfully on these people that he inspired to write down his words, they got to the destination. They were successful. They gave what we see as the word of God. Now, for me, that means this. Uh, you can trust what you see and read in the pages of the scripture. Now, there are two things that I want to mention, and I need to really quickly because they're in, important, but I don't want to go into them very much. And that is, I hold to what's called verbal inspiration. Now, I don't have that on your outline, I don't think. But uh, that means that the very words that they wrote were inspired, not just noble thoughts that he gave them. He didn't just give them certain things and say, now here's A, B, and C, and you make your choice as to which. I believe in what's called verbal inspiration. Uh, now, listen to what 1 Corinthians 2.13 says. We speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but words which the Holy Spirit teaches. So the writer of Corinthians, Paul, is saying we're not using words that are from man's wisdom, but we're using the words that are from the teaching of the Holy Spirit. So it is correct, I think, to say verbal revelation is a reality. Now, that's the reason it's so important for us to check the words. So when God breathed is read, we look at the meaning of the Greek word God breathed. We find out it means he breathed, uh, uh, he, he breathed forcibly, he breathed consciously, he breathed successfully. That gives all the meaning of that word. And that's why the Holy Spirit inspired it to be used. Because the meaning comes along with the meaning of the words. Now, the Greek words don't always mean the same thing English words mean, and that's why it's so good for people who are in the business and know how to do it, they're trained to do it and all that. I'm not one of those upper echelon guys, but they can study the Greek and they can write about it, and that's wonderful. Kenneth Weiss, for instance, or Weiss Word Studies, I just love all that, but that's not the point. The point is the word of God was breathed of God himself, given to man, and the end result was a verbally inspired word of God. The second thing I wanted to mention was 
plenary inspiration, and that doesn't mean anything except this. That means every part of the Bible was inspired. In other words, not just poetry, not just history, not just the prophets, not just Genesis, but not Revelation, or not just Revelation, but not Genesis. All the parts of the Bible were inspired, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Now, here's my definition for you. It's in your outline. God's, uh, my definition of inspiration is God's ability to move men along as they wrote to a final destination of giving God's instruction for life in a book we call the Bible, which is composed completely of the very words that God intended. Does that make sense? Now, that's information. We'll just trust the Holy Spirit to do with it what he wants to do, okay? But the second point that I want to make in this study this morning is that the Bible, according to itself, is the infallible Word of God also. Not only inspired, but infallible. Now, what do we mean by that? The word infallible means not liable to deceive or lead astray. In other words, you can trust the Bible in whatever it teaches it will not lead you astray. Now, that's the negative, okay? The negative statement about it is, hey, it will not lead you wrong. <clears throat> you can trust the Bible in any area where it speaks. For example, take the area of marriage. What the Bible says about marriage, you can trust. It will never lead you to mess up your marriage if you trust the Bible about what it says about marriage. However, be double dog certain you know what the Bible is really meaning when it talks about marriage. Have you ever heard the statement that the Bible says what it means? You know, and means what it says? The truer statement is the Bible means what it means. Now get busy and figure out the meaning of the words. That's literally a better way of saying it because the meaning is not always clear when you're reading English and it having been written originally in Greek. I'm just going to give you a little example of this and it won't take me long at all. But, and I don't want to dwell on this, but in Ephesians 5, everybody says about marriage, the wife submits, Amen. the husband's the boss, amen. and so on. <laughs> I'd say amen too if I believed that, but I don't. See, I believe Ephesians 5.21 says, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ, the wife to her husband. By the way, the word submit is not even in verse 22 in the original, the closest text we have to the original, not even in there. It's just an inference from the verse above. Submitting one to another, the wife to her husband in, in everything, the husband loving his wife in every way, that's just describing the mutual submission to the two. Now, that's what I believe the Bible teaches about marriage. So I take that and I apply it. Mary takes that, she applies it. In our union, 
God will not lead us astray in that. Now, if you have a different understanding of that and you trust the Lord to, to lead you through your understanding of it, if you are trusting the Holy Spirit in your life, which every believer is to trust the Holy Spirit to be their wisdom and their strength and all of that. You're not going to go wrong except be open to whatever the Spirit wants to show you along your journey because our learning of the Word of God is an ever-going-on experience. I wish I had time to tell you what I'm doing with Revelation right now. I have not liked Revelation. It has never been fun for me. It wasn't where I wanted to go. I believed what I believed about it, but I didn't like what I believed about it. It didn't sound right. One day I discovered about the new covenant. This was 40 years ago. I discovered about the new covenant. All at once, my understanding of the entirety of the New Testament opened up in a manner I'd never seen. And my view of Revelation totally changed. About seven or eight months ago, I was doing a little personal study, and all at once, I got so caught up in Revelation. I've been studying it for several, seven months now. I've got two more postings to do. I'm going to go back and change some grammar and put in a little idea or two or take out a little thing I won't like and all that, and we're going to put it in printed form. Uh, I don't know how we'll do it eventually, and I've never dreamed that I'd do that with the book of Revelation. I'm 81 years old, and I don't think I understood a thing about Revelation really until just a few years ago, and then when I got willing to look at it just a few months ago. Do you mean an 81-year-old can learn? Now, Ellie, you learn every day of your life, don't you? You're the normal human being. Thank you, my friend. Yeah. We learn every day we live. Well, that's true of the Word of God. It comes alive to you. It, comes, it becomes light to you in ways you've not seen. I've had times when I've sat under this guy sitting where my sister-in-law, Jenny, is sitting right now. I've been sitting there. He's been teaching. And a light bulb come on in my mind. And I see something. Oh, my goodness. You know, how many times have I looked at that, whatever... But that's the way the teaching of the Word of God is. And uh, so uh, you can trust all parts of it to be inspired. You can uh, trust all of it to be infallible, meaning that it will never leave you astray. Now, the positive is this. When you really get to know the Word of God and begin to understand it the best the Spirit is enabling you to do, uh, it is good and profitable for doctrine. It is true. Uh, it uh, convicts of what's false. It corrects what is wrong. And uh, uh, I'm telling you, it'll just get you going on the right path. So whatever is taught in the Bible will not lead you astray in any area of life that it actually is teaching about. Now, you cannot learn about splitting an atom in the Bible. You have to go to other places to learn about splitting an atom. Who created the atom? I know. Because I've been to the source about the one who did. All right. That's the infallibility of the Word of God. Now, I want to move rather quickly to the... Uh, inerrancy of the Word of God. Now, what does the word inerrant mean? It means without error of 
any kind. Except, ladies and gentlemen, now this is my personal conviction. Uh, you'll have to take it as I'm teaching you my view of this. When the Bible, when I say the Bible is inerrant, my meaning is in the original autographs or the original copies of the original books only. In other words, when Peter finished his second epistle, sent to the brethren, that letter that he sent was inerrant in its content, okay? In other words, it had no errors. It was God-breathed. Now, um, we're talking about the original documents there. Somebody said, well, why is that important? All right, now watch. If you were a carpenter and you have a piece of wood you've cut about four feet long, four feet and three-fifths of an inch long. Now, you take another uh, uh, instrument and, or log and try to cut it four, three, and five, uh, uh, four feet and uh, three-fifths inches or whatever I said. Uh, if you cut it the same, you may or may not get it exactly right. You cut a multitude of those, and they're not going to be all exactly the same. A little fudge here, a little thing there, whatever. So the closer you can get to the original piece, the better off you are in your measurement. So that if you were to measure 50th down the road, Ooh, your measurement would not be exactly the same as the original. Now, what that means is this. By the way, we have none of the original documents that were written of the New Testament. None of them. We have portions, multitude of portions, many, many portions of old documents of translation. We can go back as close as we can to the original, and we, they're called translations of the Bible, and they are very, very good. But it doesn't mean that those, those uh, translations are going to have everything precisely right. For instance, they can make a mistake. Can I just give you an illustration of this? The oldest manuscripts of the scripture show what um, that verse that says this. If any person desire bishopric, that's a godly thing. That's a good thing. If any person desires bishopric, that's a good thing. Bishopric is the Greek word. Now, what does it mean? We, where we get the word bishop, of course. The idea uh, is uh, uh, if someone desires, the, the word means overseer. Uh, how can I explain this? That's the Greek word that we translate bishop. It, uh, 
my word's gone from me, Steve. Jump in and share it with the board bishop. Point May is pastor. Uh, Episcopos. Goodness, I couldn't get it on my tongue. Episcopos is the Greek word. We translate it bishop. Okay? Now, the word episcopos means oversight, overseeing. But along comes King James in 14-whatever, and he translates that passage and adds this. If anyone desires the office of episcopos, wait a minute. The phrase the office of is not in the closest originals. But why would the King James use the word office of? Well, because they had a religious office called the bishopric. That's where I wanted to get to my word. Uh, they had bishops. And so they wanted to see it in the text of the scripture. Now, I appreciate the, the guys, the 40 guys that translated the King James Version. I think basically they did what they think is best. But in this one little place, they added a word that doesn't help people understand it. It detracts from the original meaning. The original meaning is that the overseeing is a gift that God dispenses to whomsoever he chooses. It is not an office. It is a spiritual gift to be exercised. Does that make sense? Now, that's just an illustration of how we try to go back and get the earliest meaning from the earliest translation because they're closest to the original. And ladies and gentlemen, we can trust our translators because they're doing well. I have a little problem with some of the NIV a little bit. Uh, Steve read from his while ago and uh, he said, well, I've got the original of this American Standard, the revised American Standard. I don't like that well. He, you know, and I agree with him. Uh, so, you know, all the translations are good, bad, indifferent, whatever. But we can trust that the original text was uh, absolutely inerrant without any error. Translations are good. Go back to the earliest translation. Make sure they're translations, okay? I love the message, but the message is not technically a translation. It, it's, yeah, a paraphrase. It's somebody giving their opinion about. I love it. Peterson did a good job. But I just know that the message, I have to go back. This is why uh, I, I'm telling you, uh, you don't remember Oscar Thompson, but Oscar Thompson was professor of evangelism at Southwestern Seminary. I was Oscar's pastor. And one, he died of bone cancer. In fact, I helped with Roy Fish do his funeral, his memorial service. But Oscar gave me my Kittle's word study. It's a 18 volume or whatever it is of word studies that, that he had used all his life. He signed them over to me. I cherish those things. I've still got them. Kittle's word studies is the best word study of the Greek language you can ever get. I'm not saying you ought to get it. I don't even know if they publish it anymore. All I'm saying is you study the word. You study people who know Greek. You study people who don't know anything if you don't want to study Greek. You study people you trust to paraphrase. I trust Peterson, the message. I love the way he says it. I use it a lot. But my confidence in the inerrancy of the word of God has to do only with the original manuscripts. 
And I trust that we'll get back close to them as we possibly can. So the Wing Ching James in the 14th century does something a little odd. I look back at the older manuscripts. They don't have it. Ooh, I'll go with the older manuscripts here. Does that make sense? Okay. Then I'm going to leave it. Now, inerrancy does not mean that ordinary use language wasn't used because it was used in the original manuscript, ordinary language. They used things like the sun when the sun came up. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we know the sun doesn't come up. But in ordinary language, even in English, the sun goes down, the sun comes up. It's an idiom. It's just a phrase. Some of those were found in the originals, okay? And they're retained, some of them, in the manuscripts. I mean, the translation. Uh, so inerrancy doesn't mean that ordinary language wasn't used. It was. Inerrancy doesn't mean that you won't find some unusual grammatical construction, because you will. Their Greek construction was grammatically fantastic in a way English is not. You will find Paul and uh, Peter, two different styles of writer, uh, writers. And inerrancy doesn't mean that translation won't have a word or, or two of problems. They do, and I've already shared that. So here's my definition of inspiration. God's ability to move along as they wrote to a final destination of, God, of God's instructions for life in a book we call the Bible, which is composed completely of the very words God intended and which will never lead us astray in any area of truth in which uh, it has given uh, us direction without error of in the original manuscripts at all. It's really that simple. And I've just been informational for you. Now, if you find it some way to be inspirational, to even inspire you to study the scriptures more or to look deeper or whatever. Wonderful. Transformation, that's a work only the Holy Spirit can produce. But you've been a great group. We've got two minutes left. Steve, would you come and close with our time of prayer, prayer requests, whatever. And my friend, thank you. And I'll try to do better next week. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you.